third time I've delivered this message, so wound up, I'm cross-eyed. <laughs> Want to deliver this in tongues, but I don't think that'd be edifying for the broader body of Christ. <laughs> so good to see you, and, and it is so good to be back. I just really feel like I need to say today just how much I love my home here, and I think for so long wondering if I'd ever feel at home anywhere again. It's just, this is my community, you're my people, my tribe, and it's great to have you to come home to. Um, and um, I do want to get right down to business, not a lot of jokes, not a lot of warm-up, whatever, got a lot to cover, but I need to ask something of you before we go further in the message. I very rarely ask you for any kind of a commitment or pledge, but I need a pledge from you today. It's very simple. It's not asking you to like the sermon. You may not like the sermon. It's not asking you to like me personally. You may not like me personally. That's probably not very smart if you do, but that's okay. I'm just kidding. I promise. You cannot like me. You cannot like the sermon. All I need from you is I just need you to stay till the end and just hang in, just hear the whole thing. Is that fair enough to ask? Is that too much to ask? I don't know. I can already tell by your squeamishness it's going to be a fun one. Because see, what happens is the quieter you are, the louder I get. Because then I smell blood in the water. I'm just saying it may have an unintended opposite effect. But yeah, hang with me. I do feel like I've got a word for you that's, that's important. I do want to say before we get to the text, part of what's shaping me right now, I did just get back from Perth, Australia. It's my first trip to Australia. I got in last night. It was such a, a beautiful experience. My dear friend, Jared McKenna, who I desperately want to introduce you to, he's just an amazing, amazing person. Um, Jared's a guy about my age who um, well, he's a, a, a peace activist, has won multiple global peace prizes. He established most recently um, this wonderful home. Called, it's called First Home Project there in Perth. Actually kind of a series of, of like homes, almost like apartments together, where they house refugees. And these are people that come from all over the world, people that have fled from Iran, from Syria. Some of them are Muslim. It is so beautiful and so gorgeous the way that God is using that, the witness of that ministry through Australia. Because even though it's relatively small, they have a handful of refugees, it's made a lot of noise and has become so, um, Christians are just so aware there of what God's doing through that ministry and it's, it's changing things, it's cha- changing paradigms. Um, part of Jared's witness as well, he's been arrested many times for his Christian witness. So some of what that's looked like is that, uh, specifically in Australia, they were policies they felt like were unjust for refugees, where people uh, underage, kids were being detained, and so they staged peaceful sit-in protests. And Jared's been to jail a few, a few times over this. But through this, they've actually seen like real change, like real social transformation. And I'm just, um, I'm mesmerized by all that, truthfully, because I see so much in that of the kind of Christian witness that I want to, that I want to embody, but often feel like I don't. And I've just, just been so shaped by that experience of being with him and with that community. So I'll, I'll probably refer back to that a bit as we go, but I am a little bit still hungover from that in the best possible way. That and few, um, disclaimers, disclaimers, introduction, 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 blah, blah, blah. Let's go to the word of the Lord. Stand with me, if you would, for the reading from the Gospels, because that's what we do when we get to words by and about Jesus. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, 
the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. You'll be happy to know, by the way, just as a footnote, you'll be happy to know that this is the last time in history that anyone has ever uh, minimized the role of ministry to the poor from an insincere place. That's never happened before as a cover-up for people's own stuff, just this one text. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Would you pray with me? Lord of the church, Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, Spirit of life, meet with us now through the proclamation of your word. Pray that you would speak to us, reveal what needs to be revealed, expose what needs to be exposed, comfort what needs to be comforted, tear down what needs to be torn down, build what needs to be built. Most of all, Lord, I just pray that um, you would just help me because I'm so inept with these things to just get out of the way of what you want to say to your people. I pray that if there be any offense today, that it would be the offense that comes from the cross of Christ, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who believe, it's life, it's peace, it's love, it's everything to us. If there be any offense, let it be at that, and not over something randomly stupid, I might say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can grab a seat. There is a lot going on with this text. This is, I believe, a different story, while there are a lot of similarities, while it's a parallel text, to the story that we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of a woman, uh, this penitent sinner who comes and uh, and, and pours out the perfume on Jesus' feet. Does it seem to be the same text? It's placed differently chronologically. This is right before Jesus' death. And instead of being an anonymous sinner, this is uh, Mary, who we know well, as in Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And she comes bringing this, this, this jar, this, uh, this perfume, to anoint Jesus, worth a year's worth of wages. And you can almost feel the tension in the text of this is just being such a, such a tense uh, just scene. Everyone's uncomfortable with this. For one, the very fact that she comes and does this in the center of the room, especially in a culture like this very patriarchal culture, the fact that a woman... Uh, comes and does this in front of everybody. To to dry the feet of Jesus with her hair meant that she let her hair down, which would seem familiar, almost erotic. Uh, Everybody's cringing a little bit at this. I'm convinced there were other disciples who were cringing, probably not just Judas. Judas is the one who speaks up and says something about it, though. Everybody's just a little bit freaked out at this display of, of worship, this extravagant act of worship. But Jesus validates this woman. Invalidates this beautiful, intimate sacrifice of worship that comes from her. And that's where you get, after Judas, you know, lodges his protest, hey, hey, shouldn't we be doing something more practical here? Couldn't we do something a little bit more pragmatic with the money? This just doesn't look like a good use of the resources. John, quick to say, because Judas is a thief and was taking money from the side. Judas, Judas lodges the complaint. And there Jesus speaks what I'm convinced are some of the most misunderstood words in all the New Testament, where he says, the poor you have with you always, but you will not always have me. So before we talk about what Jesus is saying, let's talk for a moment about what he's not saying. What Jesus is not saying here is that the church's ministry to the poor is somehow less important than the worship of Jesus. 
love Jesus, honor Jesus, worship Jesus, sing praise songs, and what you do with the poor is somehow irrelevant. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Jesus, who speaks the language of Hebrew Scripture so fluidly, like we see in the Apostle Paul, it's so in him, he always speaks in the language of Scripture from such a deep place. And here, as it is often in the ministry of Jesus, he makes an intentional allusion to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15, 11 says, now note the, note the parallel here, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth. You hear that? The poor you will always have with you. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, therefore, God says, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. That's what God says, and that's what Jesus is pulling from here. The the, the, the Old Testament, the, the people of God, Israel is God's elect chosen people, are called to love on the poor and the marginalized so well to where ultimately the day comes when there will be no poor, because everybody's taken care of. The, the church, of course, is gonna, cares for the poor. Part of what puts this into perspective for us, and I think this is going to be a, a radical shift for some of us, is we read this as Jesus saying, you know, well, the poor you'll have with you always, as if Jesus is somehow setting himself over and against the poor. Please do not forget the fact that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, when he walked the earth, was the poor. He was poor. How do we know this? Because he tells us directly. The foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus himself was poor. So when he says, the poor you have with you always, but in the, but in the right, the poor you have with you always, but leave her alone. Let her do this, right? You won't have me forever. One, Jesus prioritizes this act because he's getting ready to go to the crucifixion. So this him as the embodiment of the poor, as I represent the poor, he's going away. So that makes this time especially weighted. But in another way, see, what Mary is actually doing here that's so beautiful is in the way the church always does. She is caring for the poor, but caring for the poor in Jesus. In the same way that whenever we do something to care for people who are poor and marginalized, we also do that unto Jesus. Mary is doing what the people of God have always done and always will be doing. So the point Jesus says to Judas is, leave her alone. He rebukes him. He speaks sternly. She's doing exactly what I'd want her to do. The other thing about this text that I find to be so, so gorgeous is that Mary does this as a way of anointing Jesus for his burial. Surely she's not aware fully of what she's doing. Surely she doesn't know exactly what's coming. Part of what makes this so powerful is that we know in the Old Testament, of course, that just before a person, when a person is being coronated as king, then a prophet of God, always a male, someone like Samuel, would anoint the head. How beautiful is this, that Jesus, who's about to be coronated through his death and resurrection, he's going to be anointed not through a male prophet, not through some famous Israelite mouthpiece of God, but through, in her culture, what would be, seem to be a common woman who doesn't have any real influence or power. And she doesn't anoint the head of Jesus. She anoints the feet of Jesus. So much in that about the nature of the kingdom of God. Because you do understand, right, the cross and resurrection of Jesus is his coronation. Right? When he raises from the dead and he ascends to the Father, that doesn't mean that he leaves. But rather, he goes to take his rightful place at the right hand of the Father to openly rule and reign over the cosmos. We know he's always been God, but now he's being revealed. Is that making sense? So this is a coronation. It's lovely. But I won't talk about any of that. I, want to talk, I really want to talk about Judas. I really want to talk about Judas here. Funny to me, too, because I came so close to not 
using this text. I almost went with the Old Testament text this week from Isaiah because it's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, and I'm so glad I didn't. I, I had purposed in my heart to preach from the gospel text during Lent through, le- through the lectionary. And what can I say? The Holy Spirit is a masterful DJ. He mixes those cuts just right. Almost feels like you can't make this up, but here you go. Judas for, here is such a, Judas for me here is such an intriguing character. Judas whom we tend to so villainize and scapegoat, because of course he is the great villain of the New Testament for us. We read this and immediately the, the reaction comes of, boo, Judas, hiss, Judas. This is so outrageous. The fact that in this beautiful act of worship, this intimacy between Mary and Jesus, the fact that he could somehow try to discredit that, we couldn't even imagine being such a person. We couldn't even imagine doing such a thing. It becomes kind of easy for us to scapegoat Judas in this way until we look at Judas a little bit closer. One thing we know about Judas, as he's Judas Iscariot, his last name itself, his surname gestures towards this, is that he's part of a political party in Jesus' time known as the Zealots. Zealots were people who were, they, they were religiously devoted Um, They believed that the time was coming, like the prophets talked about, when God was going to establish his rule and kingdom openly in the earth in such a way that he would vindicate Israel to once again be a light of the nations. They believed that that should happen by any means necessary. So if that means you need to kill, then you kill. If that means you need to take somebody out, you take somebody out. They advocated violent uprising against Rome. Two of the disciples were zealots, both Judas and Peter, interestingly enough. If you want to know, by the way, uh, what some of those dinner table conversations look like between disciples, how awkward that could get, keep in mind that Matthew, the tax collector, is also a disciple. And at the time of Jesus, it was common for zealots to kill tax collectors. So to put it mildly, politically, they're on different sides of the spectrum, but they're brought together by, by Jesus. They're all part of these disciples. Judas is one of these zealots. And what you have to understand about zealots is that these are people who are, if nothing else, they're deeply pragmatic. They are practical people. Whatever it takes, whatever you got to do to get the job done, you get it done. Doesn't matter how many people you got to bury. Doesn't matter what it has to look like. So long as we get to the right kind of end, the end justifies the means. Very, very pragmatic, practical people in that way. And you can understand how troubling it must have been, not only for Judas, but for any of these zealots. Surely also for Peter, right? Who just after this is soon going to be hacking off somebody's ear in the garden. They don't know what to do with the teachings of Jesus. Jesus is going around talking about blessing your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, loving your enemies, turning the other cheek. That's not practical. That's not pragmatic. That's not how the world works. You can't do these things in real life. Let's have some sympathy for Judas here. He's a pragmatic guy, right? He's practical. He, he, he struggles to understand how this kingdom of vision of Jesus could ever really come to be. In the same way I'm convinced so many of his listeners did. How is it possible that a king could establish a kingdom not through overcoming his enemies through war, but through sacrificing his own life through death? That doesn't work. That's never happened before. It's ridiculous. He's practical and he's pragmatic. But beyond that, the other thing about Judas we need to see is that he's business savvy. He's an economic guy. He's he's drawn towards finance and commerce. As a practical, pragmatic person, part of that for Judas means he knows his way around money, even if he is dishonest with it. 
So when I read that from this particular perspective of Judas, yes, it's, he's still a scary figure for me and he's not particularly likable and all the time, but yet there's something about this where I, can, I feel like I can get Judas a little bit more. It, he does, in fact, make a terrible disciple, but especially in our culture right now, Judas would make an amazing presidential candidate. Am I right? Practical, pragmatic, so long as we have the right bottom line by any means necessary, and he understands the economy. We would be looking to elect such a person. Oh, also, he's known as a disciple of Jesus. There we go. So this is where it gets a little bit awkward. When I travel these days, which I don't do all the time, but I do feel like that's part of my calling and especially in the season of my life, I feel like I'm connected with so many Christians around the globe who's, uh, who just inspire me and move me in deep ways. The conversation I've been having with Christians around the world, when I was in Australia this last 10 days or whatever, when I was in Ireland six months ago, so long before, this, before we got to like where we are now, when I'm talking with friends who are Christians in the Middle East, the first thing that comes up in conversation, often uh, not even really like a how are you, how are you settling into Tulsa or whatever, first thing I hear from Christians around the world, no matter what their denomination, whether they're Pentecostal or Baptist or Catholic or Orthodox, here's the first thing they want to raise to me as an American. They say, Jonathan, can you please explain this whole Trump thing? Can you explain the Trump phenomenon? And that's when I say, no, I'm sorry. You can probably tell by my accent. I'm from Canada. I don't know anything about that. And I go running out the door on the other side. And that's actually not what I do. But that really, that, that really is, that really is the, the, the question. That's the first thing they raise. And the, I always kind of want to say, oh, no, I have no idea what that's about. And yet I feel like in so many ways I, I do understand it more than I maybe even want to let on, not just because of observations I make about culture, not just because of observations I make about where the world is and these complex relationships between church and politics and society, but because of the state of my own heart. I understand it all too well. But you just, you just need to know this, that Christians around the world of all stripes and colors are utterly confused and bewildered by us right now. They hear that angry incendiary rhetoric because there's a trail of ugliness following it all around right now and they're puzzled how is it that oftentimes the people who seem to be most enthusiastic about this message self-identify as Christians how can you explain that what does that mean so here's the point where I need to back out just a little and give a bit of context and perspective I struggle legitimately struggle to know how to bring any of this up and to know how to talk about it in a way that's faithful because I am, such, I am so deeply convinced that the kingdom of God is such a radical alternative to any of the politics of this world. It just is. The kingdom of God is something else other entirely. Some of you always look, like, uh, look at me like I have three eyes when I say this, but the kingdom is neither right nor left. It is not conservative nor liberal. It comes from another place, from another perspective. I think often of what Jesus says to John in the book of Revelation. Come up here. I know I'm operating from a kingdom perspective when I'm rising above, when I'm coming up. And instead of moving over to one of these sides, the kingdom view is always something other. It's always something alternative. It it, it can't be collapsed easily into any of our existing political categories and be faithful. It just does not work. 
And that is equally true, I believe, on both sides of the aisle. Also a shock to some of you, because I know especially in our world right now, many of you have been indoctrinated with the idea that what you believe about Jesus, whether or not you believe the Apostles' Creed, what you believe about what happens around this table is almost secondary to what convictions you have about American politics, which again is deeply problematic. On the left, what I see, and I, please hear me, I'm not, I don't say this with any judgment, I hope, because I understand these tendencies so much. But when Christians identify too easily with the left, when the politics of the kingdom is somehow consumed in the politics of the world, what ends up happening is you have people who have actually some, some ideas that are quite lovely in terms of we want to care for the poor, we want to see peace, we want to see justice, we want to see mercy, But what happens is it loses a theological center. Once you take Jesus out of that, once you take the explicit proclamation of the kingdom of God out of that, once you take the spirit out of that, it just does not work. It just doesn't work. Because only in Christ is it possible that you can live in a world where there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Only Jesus can make that possible. And when Christians just go running to the left, you end up with this witness that says we want to challenge social structures and power dynamics and all of that might be well and good, but it loses its spiritual center. And what you end up with then is a hollow spirituality where you have a form of righteousness that denies the power thereof. It just doesn't transform anybody because you can't change the world. You can't change a society without profound, thoroughgoing spiritual transformation. You try to... uh, I'm a big student of Martin Luther King. The teachings of Martin Luther King do not work if you extract that from all of his language of Moses and the Exodus, if you, don't, if you extract that from the explicit teachings of Jesus, none of it makes sense. It falls apart. And that is my critique of lots of classical liberalism, is that in an attempt to get to these certain ideals that require God's spirit, but to do that in a way that's not rooted in the particularity of Jesus, it's destined to fail. And it does fail. Every time. You okay thus far? Some of you are. On the right. Ooh. On the right, Christianity, when it becomes too intertwined with our current politic, turns into something that's moralistic, legalistic. It's about law, not grace. Often about enforcing God's law on people who don't believe like we do which always works out awesome. No, it does not. It does not work any better. It, 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 it doesn't have grace. It's equally devoid of spirit. Like It, it also becomes something that, that becomes deformed and gross. This is why I think it's so important that Christians don't allow themselves to be collapsed too easily right or left. We have to maintain this unique third-way witness of the kingdom of God. That's what, I've, that's what I believe. That's what I've always believed. Four years ago in the last election, I was a big advocate, Lord willing, I will do this again this year, for something called Election Day Communion, where a number of us were calling on pastors and churches around the country to have communion services on the end of the night of the presidential election at 7 o'clock so that after people vote, then they come in, and it's like, okay, no matter who you voted for, no matter which side you veered on, no matter where you checked the box, let's get back together and get back down to the business of being the church and worship Jesus and building the kingdom of God because that's what we're here for. And that, Amen? Thank you for the four of you who like this. Uh, that's the kind of witness that I want to embody. Like, that's where I am. I don't want 
to, I don't want myself to be too accommodated and compromised to one of these sides. And yet, here's the thing that I deeply struggle with, right? Is that while I believe all of that is true, and that's absolutely where I am, I'm also deeply aware that to call Jesus Lord, to say Jesus is Lord is not an apolitical claim. What I mean when I say that is, when I say Jesus is Lord, I mean Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is not Lord of spirits. Jesus is not just Lord of people's souls. He's Lord over the whole cosmos. I think it was N.T. Wright who says that uh, if, if, if we don't believe Jesus is Lord overall, then he's not Lord at all. In other words, we believe that Jesus is Lord in real life, over real things. We believe that what we believe about Jesus, how we worship Jesus, what we proclaim in the creed, should have real implications for how we live our daily lives. And that's the way the kingdom of God is political, not about party politics, but meaning that we have to live out the implications of Jesus in our daily lives. So, that, so, so what I don't want to do is have a radically dichotomized approach of two kingdoms. That becomes increasingly scary to me, again, as a king person, and this is really convicting to me. But when I see what people went through through the civil rights movement, I didn't say this in other services, but I think the civil rights movement is one of the great move of God's in America. And if you don't think that's a move of God, you don't understand what a move of God is about or what it's for. (laughs) Um, More about that for another time. I really believe that. But when I see, like, what would happen? I mean, it did happen, right? How much in the 1950s did evangelical churches say, well, we can't talk about politics here. We're just here to talk about Jesus. We can talk about issues of race because we're just here to worship. Man, that is gross. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be the Lutheran church in Germany in the 1940s. I love Luther. I'm a Luther fan, truly. But Luther was one of the people in historical theology that most developed the motif of two kingdoms, where there's a great separation between, well, this is how the kingdom works, but, you know, the world, pragmatic, practically... Not a coincidence in my mind, much as I love Luther, that Germany is the place where Hitler happened. <laughs> because where Christians are convinced that there's two very different kingdoms, oh, who do 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 do? We're just here to worship and sing songs about Jesus and practice the Eucharist and don't know what's happening with this Hitler business because we don't talk about that in church. You see what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if you do. I don't want to be, like, I don't want to be that person. That seems really dangerous to me. So I, 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 I struggle with how to articulate all of this, wanting to hold the tension of thinking that we need different kinds of Christian witness within the church and that there can be an authentically Christian way of practicing a lot of different kinds of politics in the world. Like, I really do believe that. So we have Christians who, for example, are deeply convinced that what they believe about Jesus and the kingdom needs to have certain implications for how we should then leverage Um, structures and systems in such a way that care for the poor and the marginalized. That's a legitimate Christian witness. It is also a legitimate Christian witness for people who say, I want the poor to be cared for as well. I care for the marginalized also, but that's not the role of the government. That's the job of the church. That's also a Christian perspective. That's a family disagreement. See, we can come to the table. I'm a big believer. This is not today's sermon, but Anything that's not in the creed, you never call somebody a heretic if if the matter's not creedal. I'm a big believer in that. I can really disagree with somebody, think they're very wrong about a thing, and not think that they're somehow outside of Christ, so long as we're professing the common faith of the creed. There is space for so many different views. 
However, have you felt the butt coming? <laughs> However, I'm really struggling right now because what I see happening so much with this entire broader Trump phenomenon, the ugliness, the name calling, the fear, the paranoia, the insults, all of these things, which again, our brothers and sisters are saying, how is this happening? What does this mean? What I can, what does it mean for someone to publicly, on television, out loud, talk about advocating war crimes, advocating torture openly, waterboarding's not far enough, or to say, if the bad guys take us out, and sometimes you got to do what you got to do, and you got to harm their families, we got to kill them. You know who said that in Christian tradition? No one, because that's not a Christian position, unless you count something like the Spanish Inquisition, which is idolatry of the worst order. Like, that's not just wrong. That's not like a little wrong. That's not, that's disastrously wrong. And I don't want to like pick on that too much because there's plenty of things across the political spectrum that I don't think radiate the kingdom of God. But the thing that grates me so much in that scenario is that people keep bringing Jesus into this kind of rhetoric. And I just want to say very politely, oh, you know, that's a wee bit of blasphemy to take the teachings of the Lord of the church, the one who gave us the Sermon on the Mount, and the one who overcome the powers of death, hell, and the grave through his own sacrifice, and we're talking about torturing people, kill them, and wiping out their families. What? This is not an authentically Christian position. And yet the reason that I think that we're here, and the reason I think that some of that is so prevalent within the church, and we're acting out of the same kind of fear and the same kind of panic, is because we, like Judas, have become so practical and pragmatic. We're all about pragmatic religion. That's what evangelical church growth looks like in America. Whatever it takes to put butts in the seats. We gotta keep the people coming back, you understand? So they can hear the proclamation of Jesus and be saved. Can't make it about boring things like the Eucharist. We gotta keep people entertained. We're pragmatic when it comes to growing the church and we're pragmatic and practical when it comes to our politics. So long as we get to the right sort of bottom line, it doesn't matter how you get there. Means don't matter. I cannot tell you how deeply disturbing that idea really is true to me. All kinds of ways of being a faithful Christian and embodying different sides of Christian witness. But some of that just doesn't work. We're in a culture right now where I just continue to watch and I've seen, I've just, we've seen this developing for years. And this is where I want to be really careful about how I speak about the Trump phenomenon. I'm say, yeah, I'll say that right now. So part of the, what makes me feel really cautious in saying this is I can already feel the tendency in me to want to scapegoat Donald Trump the same way I talk about people scapegoating Judas in a way that I find terribly disingenuous. Yes, I think there's real issues. There's a reason why so many wonderful Christian leaders have spoken out about this. Max Licato spoke out against Donald Trump. I don't think Max Licato has ever said an unkind thing about anybody He's nicer than Mr. Rogers. If Max Licato calls you out, dude, <laughs> issues. I'm just saying. So yeah, I do, like, like, like there, there is stuff there to be sure, but part of what, but, but I really think that the deeper issue for me is that we keep veering towards this kind of new civil religion that has all kinds of religious language attached to it, but loses the content of the gospel. So I wrote about this a good bit at the time. In the last election, 
I watch, and I hope I want this comment not to be taken out of context. So, uh, Romney versus Obama, and believe me, y'all, I am not sliding Mitt Romney here. I have never loved Mitt Romney more than I do right now. <laughs> never wished for Mitt Romney any more than I do right now. Decent, decent man and candidate. But the son of the most famous, uh, famous evangelist in the world since the Apostle Paul uh, basically calls this Mormon person a Christian while questioning the authenticity of the faith of the other side. They're saying, oh, that's getting a little bit weird. Same year that Donald Trump spoke for the first time at Liberty University for the son of another famous American evangelist. No real theological center to any of that. It's are you on the right side in this us versus them? All of that for me just gets so, so deeply disturbing. There's something very problematic about this. And yet, even as I'm articulating these things, and even where there's some places where I want to say like, y'all, we have got to come back off the ledge on some of those things. We are going over the ledge. We are getting into territory that is so not Orthodox Christian anyway. I keep wanting to make all my disclaimers because it's the quietest service and everybody else has been shouting with me. I love y'all anyway. But see, part of it is, part of the reason I, I, I keep wanting to stress, yes, we can disagree and still come around the same table. There's so much room for that. But there has to be a certain point where you have to say, okay, no, 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 that's not Christian. That, that's just not Christian in fundamental terms. Last, uh, last summer, soon after I got here, about the time I was moving, I think, I preached a sermon after the shootings in Charleston. And I made a drive-by reference in the sermon to how I feel like as Christians we need to pray and be discerning about how God will lead us as to how, to, how we have this whole, handle this whole gun issue, this whole gun conversation. Let's be prayerful and discerning about that. Some of you guys, oh Lord, you're typing emails to Ed and Brent. I understand Oklahoma is very red. I am one of you now. I live in Oklahoma now. We're all the same people, et cetera. But you could just feel the whole thing in the room. <gasps> We've got a new guy here and he's wanting to round up and take up our guns. I'm not trying to take your guns. A lot of you are packing right now. I don't want to offend you. Y'all are the ones with the guns. You better believe I'm going to be respectful to you. Not saying anything about rounding up anybody's guns. Let's just be proven discerning, okay? Room for conversation and real wrestling around the table among Christians. That's fine. You know what's really not fine? It's for the president of a Christian university to get up on a stage and not only endorse Donald Trump, but to encourage young 20-something Christians to carry in mass. Like, what? First of all, the last thing that makes me feel safe is for hormonal children of fundamentalists to be given weapons <laughs> while they're in college. Oh my gosh. You don't, you shouldn't be allowed to walk across the street by yourself yet, some of you. It's like, it's like I love you. Not the time or place. You understand that just gets weird to a certain point. Oh man, I'm saying a lot of things. But, and, and yet, the, 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 even in all that, here's, here's the big caution. Here's where I really want to, where I'm really wanting to land all this constructively. I hope this is constructive. Even as I say those things and I feel them from my bones, and I don't think that's about being political in a party way. This is Christianity 101, people. I can't apologize for any of this. I got a lot to apologize for in my life. Not any of this. There is so much of this that I feel so deeply. And yet, even in that, I find myself having to check myself quickly. Because I can so fast start to feel a little good about myself that I'm the morally superior one because I have what I think are the right positions on these issues. And it's such a dangerous place. 
some of you are going to think this is a terrible overstatement, and you're going to be really unhappy about this, but you said you'd stay to the end. I really believe that this whole broader Trump phenomenon is a manifestation of God's judgment on America. I believe we're witnessing judgment right here, right now. That is not to say that God is angry at us and therefore wiping us out. I'm not saying individual people who are supporting Donald Trump are not Christians. Some of you want to understand this more and want to have coffee or whatever. I love that there's such a conversational culture within sanctuary. That's so awesome. But I'm going to tell you right now, I can't say it more clearer than I'm saying it today. I'm making all the disclaimers. If we get to the end of the coffee, you'll like me better because I won't be operating underneath the anointing and therefore I won't be pulling up your stuff the same way. I'll smile a lot and you'll say, oh man, he's really friendly and I'll nod and affirm things where I can nod and affirm and I'll still say at the end of it, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Some of this really does come down to that. Being a Christian is always has to be a radical alternative to being in the world. I feel all that very, very deeply and yet at the same time, what I know is having what I think are the right beliefs about that is not enough. Here's why I say that about judgment. Because I believe what happens in judgment is God very graciously takes things that are underneath the surface of what's happening in the world and brings them to the surface. So this explosive conversation that's happening right now around race, that isn't a Donald Trump thing. That's us. And part of what makes me most uncomfortable when I look at the Trump phenomenon and all the things that I dislike about it is that what I see in that is the Holy Spirit holding up a mirror to me to all the ways that I'm practical and pragmatic and want to get the job done, to all the ways that I'm living in fear and instead of trusting in the way of the kingdom and instead of laying down my own life on the cross, I want to build a wall and I want somebody who's certain and strong and says things in a confident way to make me feel safe. That's a reflection of what's in me. That's a reflection of what's in me. I'm not railing against Donald Trump. I am Donald Trump. I'm a privileged white person. I went to Duke freaking University. I am Donald Trump. What I have to do in a moment like this is instead of just getting mad at how all of that's going, is I have to allow this to make me deeply reflective on what in me is broken, what in me is sinful, what it is about me and my own witness that's contributing to the fractured nature of the world. See, that's part of the paradox of the gospel is that endless mercy is offered to us. So much love, fathomless mercy. And yet at the same time, the gospel always calls us to take responsibility for our own actions. Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says, God sent Jesus of Nazareth. You killed him. How's that for abrasive? You killed Jesus. He wasn't speaking to the Jews there. That's a terrible reading. We've seen people do that. All of us corporately, you killed Jesus, but God has raised him from the dead. The message I am complicit in creating the kind of world that rejects the son of love. I am complicit in living in the kind of world that pushes down the poor and the marginalized. I am complicit in all the things that are broken around me. So what's happening in me right now is not a self-righteous, I'm just on some kind of a rant. What's happening is two weeks after preaching on this whole thing about you know, your one wild and precious life, what are you going to do with it? that I'm in Australia around my brothers and sisters and I'm seeing this powerful, tangible witness for the kingdom of God in the world and I'm confronted with this reality. For all your big talk, preacher man, what are you really doing to change the world? What are you really doing to help the poor? How are you really expending yourself in this way? 
that's part of what I love about the Pentecostal witness in my world is that it's such a, it's such a radical alternative witness that God would pour out his spirit on a one-eyed black preacher, son of a slave in 1906, and turn the world upside down. Long before civil rights, blacks and whites and Hispanics and Asians in the same building worshiping the same God. Long before any kind of movements or change towards gender, women who were preaching and pastoring churches because they just read the book of Acts. And Peter quotes Joel there and he says, in the last days, says God, I will pour up my spirit upon all flesh and my sons and daughters shall prophesy. So it was happening because God was speaking through the sons and daughters. That's the kind of radical witness I want to embody in my life. That's what I want. I don't want to be somebody who has big, bright ideas about God. I want to live this thing out. And that means I have to confess the ways that I'm broken. That means I have to confess the ways that I'm complicit. That means instead of pointing the finger at Donald Trump, I have to receive the gift of God's judgment. Because that's the beautiful thing about the, about the judgment of God. It is, it is never about punishment, as in just give people what they deserve. It is always about restoration. God judges to give us space to repent. Do you hear what I'm saying? God illuminates. So now what's happening and all this ugliness happening around us culturally is that all these things that have been in us for so long, it's now rising to the surface. So we can deal with it. So we can talk about it. So we can pray about it. So we can repent. And imagine this. Maybe the time is coming where instead of some horribly compromised excuse for Christian witness that looks like the left in the world or that looks like the right in the world. Maybe finally this is the moment. Maybe this is the time where being the church, being the people of God can be strange again. Maybe it can be weird again. Maybe it can be once again the kind of thing where anybody else who's not part of this kingdom, not that we isolate them, not that we offend them, but they're bewildered. Who are you? Where you come from? I'm having a hard time nailing you down. Isn't that the legacy of the ministry of Jesus? You can't nail him down. Because whatever options are presented to Jesus, he's always checking the box marked other, right? That's what it looks like to follow the Lord of the church. And I believe with all of my heart that this is a prophetic word. I really do. You don't have to accept it. In fact, I don't accept it based on my word. Pray about it. Wrestle with it. I am not a perfect mouthpiece, but I do believe this is God. Time really has come where God is calling us to repent None of this, again, comes from a place of moral superiority. The opposite of that truth is, precisely because I do feel like I've screwed up enough in my own life at this point, it is matters more than it ever has before to be faithful to Jesus. I still think there's time and space to where at the end, I hope I could live my life as a witness for the kingdom in a way that could make a real difference in the world. I just think Christians, especially when they're driven by fear, they think the worst thing that could happen is something that somebody else could do to us. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, the worst thing that could happen is not that what's something that anybody else could do to us. The devil or a Muslim or anybody who's in your other category. The worst thing that could happen to us is to prove to not be faithful to Jesus. The worst thing that could happen is for him not to say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the worst thing we have to avoid at all costs. Right? Requires that we don't operate from a place of fear, but we allow ourselves to be baptized again in the love of God. Requires us to look honestly at ourselves and our own brokenness and invite the Holy Spirit into, to make us again into a 
peculiar people, called out strange, not because we're moralistic and judgmental, not because we, we talk in a fiery way, but because people see in us the radical witness of the Spirit of God that transforms the world. Stand with me, if you would. I want to invite you, before we come to the table today, I want us to have some space to repent. One of the ways you know the difference between someone who's walking the Spirit and someone who's not, if they're pointing the finger and they're saying it's their fault, that's not walking in the Spirit. You know what gospel people say? I am the man. Not like I'm the man like, give me five, bro. Like when Nathan the prophet looked at David eyeball to eyeball and said, you are the man. I'm the one who's done this. I'm the one who's broken. I'm the one in need of repair. Walking in that kind of repentance and humility, tenderness, humility. That's what God wants. That's what God, that's what God wants from each of us. Would you join me in this very old confession of the church? Almighty God, we have sinned against you and one another in thought, word, and deed, in what we have done and in what we have left undone. Therefore, we pray in silence before you. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And just before we come to the table, since this is the last service, I want to do something I wanted to do in the other two and just ran out of time. 11.30, y'all got extra sleep, sort of. You lost an hour, but it's okay. I want to ask you just to take a couple moments with me and let's take it one step further. Let's actually get on our knees. Can we do that? And now we've prayed this corporate prayer of confession. Just a moment to get on our knees physically and to simply ask God by the Holy Spirit, Lord, show us the ways, show us the ways that our failure to walk in love and our failure to walk in the Spirit is making the world a more broken place. Show us the ways, Lord, that we are not caring for the poor. Show us the ways, Lord, that we're not loving our brother and sister who is more conservative than we are. Show us the ways, Lord, that we're not loving our brother and sister who we think are a little bit too far to the left. Show us the ways, Lord, that instead of embodying a radical kingdom alternative of love and mercy grounded explicitly in the gospel of Jesus, that we're living our lives for things that don't matter. Chasing after things, chasing after money, pursuing, um, pursuing other things at the expense of who you've called us to be as a people. Show us, Lord. Show us things that you would call us to repent of. The things that you've called us to do that we're still rebelling against the ways that you're calling us to change, that we're still kicking and screaming, insisting on our own way. Lord, we confess them. (sighs) 
Thank you, Spirit, for showing us the things in us that are just not right. Thank you for illuminating things in my heart that are condescending and arrogant and mean. Thank you, Spirit, for showing me the, um, all the things that are hypocritical, Lord, all the ways that I just um, profess you with my lips but fail to live out these things from my heart and my real life. Lord, thank you. Thank you for showing us these things. We want to be whole. We want to be clean. We want to be used by you. Yes, this name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me? And as you do, just pronounce these words that are God's words over us now. Our gracious God forgives your sin, strengthens you by the Spirit, and will keep you in life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything now has become new. Let's come to the table and as our... Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.